Catherine Amir Farr. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law, Law Behind, Behind the, the Headlines. Headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. I'm here with Dame Rosalind Higgins, former president of the International Court of Justice. Among the many prestigious appointments held by Dame Higgins, she's a member of the Institut de Droit International. She was appointed a Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire in 1995 and was advanced to Dame Grand Cross in 2019. In 1988, she was appointed a Knight of the French Order of Academic Palms, and in 2007, she was awarded the Balzan Prize for International Law. Judge Higgins, it is such a pleasure to have you here, and I hope it doesn't embarrass you when I tell you that you're one of my personal heroes. Well, thank you so much. I'm pleased to be with you. Thank you. Now, your remarkable career in service to international law obviously spanned a very myriad roles, uh, including, of course, your 14-year tenure on the International Court of Justice. Now, the court, of course, is a key component of the international system of peaceful dispute settlement. And if I could go very simple for a moment, it is, I think, not an overstatement to say that countries go to court to make the submissions as an alternative in many concrete ways to waging war. And that's part of the peaceful um, settlement of international disputes. Now, in your writings on and off the bench, you've talked a lot about the court and its role in the international system, including its obligation to develop principles of international law. Can you speak to that a bit and tell us what you think are the most critical points of development in your view? Well, those are several big questions you've put into those introductory remarks. It is certainly true that some cases have come to the court uh, where fighting was already occurring. Um, I'm thinking of Cameroon against Nigeria. Um, significant loss of life had already occurred. In Qatar against Bahrain, we were told that if we didn't get it right, by which each side meant their answer, uh, there would be fighting. And the court has played a real role in finding answers that one way or another the parties have lived with and uh, there has not been for example renewed fighting um, or fighting in, in the case of Gata Bahrain at all in spite of the dire warnings the court each time decided what it thought was correct on the basis of law. Now, on your your development point, uh, the answer has to be a little qualified. Um, I think that the court is there to develop international law in the sense that, first, it should not turn away from cases because they are difficult. That is not the reason for finding there is no jurisdiction, uh, however subconsciously, uh, nor, I think, should it ever find a non-licket. There were considerable arguments about that um, in the nuclear weapons case, and very explicitly Judge Verschetin um, and I took different views. He thought the law had not yet decided these nuclear issues. I thought there was enough international law to be able to apply to this different 
issue if you're always waiting for an answer on the very specific issue you'll never decide anything the law is there to apply to new problems that's what we have to do on the other hand i don't think that the court is there to be um, a type of academia i don't think we should be answering questions that are not put to us so although i have great admiration for certain judges who over the years have written lengthy opinions on the totality of a topic that interests them often in the human rights field uh, i don't think that's what you do as a judge i think it's what you do as an academic as a judge uh, the court must as judges the court must decide the questions that are put to it and and that's a key distinction i think that you point out the difference between the role of a judge and the role of an yes. academic and what in your mind is the downside of a, perhaps as you put it the more academic approach to decision making and going off on a very long um, discursive discussion of a particular area of law what is the downside of judges doing that that it takes away the focus of what has been rigorously decided of course one can disagree with that and you can explain the grounds on which you disappear, uh, disagree with the named points in the dispositive but that doesn't require you to write 80 pages on the topic as, as a whole regardless of the issues that were put to the court understood obviously you're off the court now but what is in your view the key challenges for the court going forward well uh i think uh they are in a way um continuing uh, uh challenges they uh the court always has to deal with the reality that its clients are states i think we've made a lot of progress about that in the last 15 20 years uh there was a period where in my view the court was overly differential to states by which i mean that virtually anything that was asked for extensions of time limits uh declining to agree to a set periods for putting in pleadings or for pleading orally were readily agreed now uh, the court has become much more rigorous and has taken aboard the point uh, that the the big deference to the court is uh, to states is that states uh will only be before the court by consent no matter how removed that consent may be from the time in issue but beyond that it's a court of law and it's for the court to decide and uh that is a, a constant uh, challenge i think uh, the court has also to remember to keep updated its practice directions they were introduced 
during my time uh, at the court uh, to deal with issues that were difficult to deal with by changes to the rules. Though again, in that period, we started looking at the rules uh, seriatim before when the court had very little work, it could afford blanket revisions every every so many years. Um, but practice directions allow you to see what issues are arising in practice and ways uh, to resolve uh, those problems. They've been very well received, but I have noted that they've hardly been used in recent years, and uh, it's if you don't use it, lose it. No, absolutely. And what about it in your own home in terms of the, the conversation around Brexit? Do you think that reflects a larger theme or is it really very, very focused on obviously the, the UK-EU relationship? It, it is a UK madness at the moment. My husband just uh, logged into BBC News and we've heard that the third attempt of yes. Theresa May has gotten down. Uh, we have become so divided in within our country. Uh, there is the feeling that we could have been helped along a bit by a more flexible EU. We haven't been, but uh, the UK has great problems at the moment, not only with decision-making, but with the tone of political discourse which has become so disagreeable mm. well you're uh, you're not alone i have to say as you may you've probably observed that we're having a similar phenomenon here in the united states and i think uh i think we will see where that takes us but history you have to remember has a lot to tell us about where we've been of course what i'd i'd like to make clear is and that perhaps is a difference from here uh, from here in the u.s um uh, the problems we're going through um, do not r reflect adversely on the world of international law. There is, I think, the same courtesy and respect, not only in the courts, but uh, in government as well for, uh, That's right. for international law and international judgments. Happily, that's not changed. <laughs> Indeed, that is very true. Um, so let's switch gears a bit to something I know that is near and dear to your heart, which is the immunity of international organizations. And obviously, you've, you have done, most recently, uh, the Oppenheim's International Law, United Nations, two-volume, and what everyone, you know, the accolades you've gotten for it is a very comprehensive treatment on the legal practice of the UN. So, you know, we, we had the privilege yesterday during the, the Hudson Medal um, Award to sit with Justice Breyer and hear some of his reflections on the United States legal fabric and the interpretation and role that international law has to play there. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about something that is very much in the in the headlines here in the United States, which is the U.S. Supreme Court's decision. Uh, and as you know, uh, recently in a case, the U.S. Supreme Court took on the uh, immunity of international organizations and really came to some conclusions about how that's analogous to foreign sovereign immunity uh, in a majority decision. And Justice Breyer took it as an opportunity, citing one of your books, uh, to take issue with that. And I wanted to open it up to you in terms of what you see 
that decision coming from in terms of the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court? And is it indicative to you of some forward trends either in the United States or internationally when it comes to organizational immunity? Well, Justice Breyer was kind enough to to cite some observations I'd made on uh, international organizations not being the same animals as states, but in fact a whole a wealth of detail on this topic is to be found in uh, the two volumes um, on uh, United Nations law. There are about 60 pages on uh, immunities of international organizations. Um, I think the arguments in this case are very finely balanced. I I can't help but note that Justice Breyer was alone in his dissent. He normally has two or three uh, liberal colleagues with him. So he was uh, following a separate path, which is not, of course, at all to say that it's wrong. There were several... Um, issues that came together in a most fascinating way. Um, I'll start with the purely temporal issue um, because here uh, at the heart of the case was the question of whether uh, the, f- the phrase in the US International Organization uh, Act um, the same as referring to Uh, the immunities which an international organization would have were to be the same as uh, those accorded to to foreign states, whether that meant that phrase was as it would have been understood in 1945 when uh, your act was drawn up or today where things, of course, on the state immunity side have have changed and the immunities are narrowed. Um, just as I was going to the court, uh, I gave a lecture which was then published in the International Comparative Law Quarterly, I suppose about 1996, called Time and the Law. And it tried to identify clusters of questions in which the answer would be decide by reference to as it was and decide by reference to the change that have occurred and Mm. try to identify um, those. When I was a student, you know, we were all told the Palmer's case, you decide um, by reference to the law as it was at a certain time. But I think by now we know that is so full of holes. There are so many circumstances in which that simply uh, is um, incorrect and the trick is finding out uh, when. Uh, the majority uh, of, of, uh, of the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court, decided using um, as its guide um, the interpretive Uh, principles for understanding words that are recognized 
both in, I think, the common law and in international treaty law, that you look first at uh, the plain words. And for the court, the same as clearly meant that if it had changed for the one, it had to change for the other, mm -hmm. so that it retained uh, the same as. Now, my, my mentor and teacher, the late, great Myers McDougall, mm -hmm. taught me at an early phase that words ain't what they seem. <laughs> and even plain meaning, you won't know the plain meaning until you've looked at other things. To which, of course, the reply was always made, then the plain meaning has has no meaning at all because you're always looking at subsidiary methods but I do rather in, incline uh, to that uh, point of view. Um, for Justice Breyer, uh, the temporal aspect was to be decided by reference uh, not it's not correct to say not to plain meaning, but um, to rephrase it, uh, the plain meaning of the words in the context of the temporal aspect could only be understood by realising that states and international organisations are not the same. So for uh, states, the reason for immunity is par in parem non habet, uh, imperium, no one state is superior um, in the law to another, whereas for international organisations, uh, the reason they have had through the years immunity was because of the functional necessity for that in order to be able to carry out the functions that the state's members who drew up their significant instruments uh, desired they should do. So he urged that that is uh, what we should all uh, focus on. And in his view, um, that it remained necessary today, um, even when an organisation is engaged in um, some uh, commercial or trading uh, measures, um, for them to have absolute immunity, otherwise they would be exposed to uh, a barrage of lawsuits. Um, and, and as you know, Justice Breyer really um, took the opportunities to say that the majority's decision portends a threat to multilateralism in the sense of not appreciating, as you've just said, the difference, the key differences between international organizations and, and, and sovereigns. Do you agree with that? I don't wholly agree with it because uh, what, what I've seen is that international organizations themselves know how to differentiate between their commercial activity and uh, their what I will call public um, activity, not of course sovereign activity, but but public activity. I I was uh, I was 
counsel for the International Tin Council in those years <laughs> of litigation in in the British courts when uh, this subsidiary body of the United Nations uh, went catastrophically bankrupt, leaving uh, third parties in, in a parlous uh, state. And uh, the International Tin Council was not immune so far as its trading was concerned because it had said so. That was in its constituent instrument. It was doing some other things besides um, stabilization mostly um, of of tin prices that one can readily see as as a public function it wasn't for its trading benefit um, and there are many examples of uh, international organizations knowing when to say um, for this activity we shall not be immune. Now in the case of, of the IFC um, what it was doing supporting uh, in funding private sector entities compared with the World Bank which helps uh, the public sector entities one can see it looks a little more on on the commercial um, side, it does not have that statement that it, for some of its activities it is not immune. But there has been a history of waiver when it's not felt it needed an immunity to perform um, its functions. Um, and it also has mechanisms for helping third parties who are hit by what it has done but may not be able to get recourse in the courts mm. so I think it is all a little more qualified than was suggested in the Supreme Court indeed and the dissent so perhaps a note of optimism in all of this <laughs> I I think uh that perhaps it is not necessary to, uh, on the temporal point, interpret by reference to years ago, which does go against the grain, um, in order to maintain the effective functioning. There have been in practice developed these other ways of, of waiver and side arrangements and so forth. So I'm optimistic the the floodgates uh, won't open. And there's this very interesting passage of of Judge Brer where he he says the parties must have known back in 1946 that it would be necessary through time for uh, absolute immunity to be uh, sustained at least for international organizations and it reminded me of a passage we have in the Iron Rhine case that was an arbitration not an international court case an arbitration between uh, um, Germany and Holland and I 
presided in that case. And it's fascinating to put those two passages side by side. We said, back in whatever year the relevant instrument was, they must have foreseen there'd be changes <laughs> through the years. That's right. And when the crunch came, it would have to be decided yeah. by reference to the developments that had occurred. <laughs> so the echoes. <laughs> echoes, but in the opposite direction. Indeed, indeed. Well, thank you so much. As usual, a privilege and a pleasure. Is there anything else you'd want our listeners to hear? Uh, no, but... Uh, uh, do all uh, try and follow what the American society is doing and become members if you can because there's something there for everyone whatever their level of knowledge and interest in international law thank you so much